during the period of the civil rights movement, you have a greater focus and celebration on ethnic identity, on linguistic identity, and really a very strong critique of the idea of assimilation. That's Natalia Melman Pedrozella, assistant professor of history at the New School, a podcast host, a wellness expert, and the author of Classroom Wars, Language, Sex, and the Making of Modern Political Culture. Today we hear from Natalia about debates over education in America and how they can shed light on our country's shifting political landscape from the 1960s to the present. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. Throughout the 60s, 70s, and into the 80s, American politics were fraught with controversy over education. Particularly in California, the questions were these. Would we only use the English language in classrooms? Would we offer sexual education? More broadly, how would we react to the huge cultural changes brought about by the 60s? The sexual revolution, for one, as well as school desegregation and a dramatic increase in Latino immigration. Natalia Melman Pedrozella examines these debates in her book, Classroom Wars. She shows how these controversies led many Americans, both left and right, to merge their values about family, as well as about personal and civic morality, and by doing so blurred the distinction between public and private life and made the classroom a political battleground. I asked Natalia about all these topics, which she addresses with her characteristic analytic flair and energy, Indeed, it's no wonder Natalia is also the co-host of a popular podcast called Past Present, which I ask her about. I ask her as well about her work as a wellness trainer and expert. All this and more coming up in today's episode of Common Ground. Natalia, thanks very much for talking with me and coming on the podcast. I'm glad to be here. Your book, Classroom Wars, is most generally about the ways in which the culture wars of the 70s and 80s drove debate about education in America. These debates were over many things, as you point out, uh, and indeed you pay a lot of attention to family values. Still, you start your book with reference to one very particular issue, that is bilingual education or the use of Spanish in classrooms. What was that debate about specifically, and why did you start your book with reference to it? Well, to step back for a second, often when we think about the educational debates of that period, what's the biggest flashpoint issue? It's desegregation, as well it should be. I mean, this preoccupied not just the South, but the North and the West in different ways, and so it makes it really makes sense that this is the central thing that educational historians have been preoccupied with. At the same time, from my perspective, reading the history of education, it seemed to me that a lot was left out. One, it presupposed this kind of black-white racial vision of what schools looked like. And two, by focusing on that particular issue, that is really a policy issue in many ways, desegregation, and it doesn't get to curriculum. It is related to curriculum later down the line, but I was wondering what was in this very contested period, not just of the 70s and 80s, but of the 60s as well, in terms of the curriculum, what was firing people up? Where were these bigger 
questions and concerns about a society that was being dislocated, that was being transformed, how is that playing out inside schools? So that is a long way of saying that the questions that really came to the fore for me were bilingual education and this issue of after 1965, all of these Latin American immigrants and Asian immigrants as well, but they had a sort of different story about this, but all these Latino immigrants coming into the United States, making demands on schools, making claims, unlike other generations of immigrants really had for recognition as a linguistic minority. I saw that that was a very major issue. And then the second one, which we'll get to, were concerns about sex education, which was a relatively small curriculum, but one that generated the most grand claims about the end of society, right? Your kid was going to have three hours of sex ed in a semester, and this was clearly a communist plot. So those two things got me really interested. Well, so that, that's very tantalizing, but if we go... <laughs> If we go back regarding debate over over language, yeah. so what were the what were the terms of the debate? What were people worried about during the period of the civil rights movements, which are often taught as African American movements? During that period, you have a greater focus and celebration on ethnic identity, on linguistic identity, and really a very strong critique, and that's even a weak word for it: critique of the idea of assimilation, which had been such a dominant way of of absorbing immigrants into the United States in previous years. So, so they come in and assimilate to the They come the in, culture. they assimilate, they have their cultural differences, we recognize some of them, you know, with often think with contributionist ways, as historians call them, like food or holidays or folk dancing, sort of harmless ways. We recognize those things, but it's on the immigrant to learn the language and to acculturate themselves to the culture. All of that is being critiqued during this period of the 1960s and 70s. So the language issue becomes one of the frontline issues in this regard, where you have Latino immigrants, and not all of them bought into this, but Latino immigrants claiming brown power, asking for recognition in the schoolhouse. What was one of the number one ways that they did this? They said, we want Spanish-speaking administrators. They said, we want um, Chicano history in classes. They said, we want Spanish language texts, and we want translations. And I grouped together the language and the culture piece, because they were always grouped together. This wasn't just about we want simultaneous translation. This was activism around language in service of a cultural goal. So what was the pushback against this? Okay, so the pushback against it, which maybe listeners might expect, but this is anti-American, this is anti-patriotic. Remember, this is during the Cold War also. So during the Cold War, a very popular trope on the right was that a kind of globalism was going to take over American mm -hmm. kids and American families and those government schools, which the right always called public schools. What stronger indication of that than seating on English in the schoolhouse, you're going to tell kids that they don't have to learn English to come to this country. I mean, this is the beginning of the end. So it was interesting. We don't usually think about Latinos and Cold War struggles together, but it was the pushback to it was very much part of that. So before we get to the results of this debate, the first part or section of your book is titled Language, and this mm -hmm. is what we've been talking about. The second is, again, rather tantalizingly called Sex. 
Gotta um, throw it in there. Yeah, exactly. Um, the general theme is, of course, how politicized sex education became in the 70s and 80s. Can you describe that debate for us? The history of sex education was more fully written when I came into this than the history of bilingual education. And the story that we generally knew in this period very much cohered with this narrative that historians were very into it that in the early 21st century about the rise of the right. And the idea was that the new right was on this upswing and what better evidence of this than fights over sex education, liberal sex educators were implementing progressive curricula and the right wing kind of pushed them out of schools and they marched onward toward the Reagan revolution and, and, and things like that. And part of that is absolutely true. But the stories that I discovered around sex education were one that yes, it was true that the 1960s and the sexual revolution of the 1970s definitely gave rise to some more progressive sex ed curricula. Those sex ed curricula inspired major, major backlash from the right all over the country. I mean, these are pamphlets that sell millions of copies with titles like, is the schoolhouse the place to teach raw sex? And you'd have Christian crusade preachers coming into individual communities and lecturing, getting like hundreds and hundreds of people. So all of that was happening. But I think I might be one of the only people, those combatants included, who actually went back and read the curricula. And what I realized is that these curricula were not all that progressive at all. They would talk about homosexuality maybe to say this is a sickness that must be rooted out. They would all culminate lesson 12 for senior year would culminate in marriage education it was you know a heterosexual marriage about the woman managing the domestic economy and the man being a good husband. Very moderate kind of... To, to our standards. To our standards. Yeah. But actually even then they okay. were not disrupting major assumptions about gender, about sexuality, but what was pretty radical was talking about sex at all. And that was a big change that I saw happen in the years that I charted there. Whereas in the 1960s, you had conservatives really, and it looks retrospectively almost sort of in a very adorable way, advocating we need silence around these issues. We can't even talk about sex at all. Even saying homosexuals are sick is bad because by mentioning this stuff, you're condoning it and kids will try it. But then what I realized was there was this discursive change that by the 1970s, plenty of people still had very conservative ideas, but they were more willing to talk about sex openly, perhaps because they realized the battle had actually been won by progressives who were talking about this stuff everywhere. You know, one would wonder too if part of the concern about bringing up these issues is that you're, that's another thing that the state or the public education would be taking away from the family. Absolutely. That was okay. So this was, you asked earlier on about how the rise of family values became part of the story I chart in this book. Well, one of the ways I think that conservatives really won in this in this uh, battle, particularly around sex ed, is by establishing parents as the ultimate authority because you see that even though curricula become significantly more progressive throughout the 70s, there's like this third rail of the parents. Every curriculum that gets passed, you have to have it be opt-in, you have to check with parents first, you have to do screenings, because really during this era, and you know, Phyllis Schlafly just died yesterday, but she was responsible for inspiring a lot of this activism, really during this era, what was rather unprecedented were all of these parents groups, usually moms, with names like mom 
moms, mothers organized for moral stability, or lots of other acronyms like that, really rising up, taking over school boards, mimeographing newsletters, and making it very, very hard for sex educators or any school to take away, as you say, that right to talk about sex from the family or sometimes the church. So you just brought up Phyllis Schlafly's yep. uh, passing. She was a conservative, right? Exactly. Okay, and what was her contribution to the debate? Phyllis Schlafly is um, a fascinating figure. Um, Phyllis Schlafly is really best known for her 1970s activism around Stop ERA, around shutting down the Equal Rights Amendment. And now she was a very strong believer that women belonged at home, and she used to like to start her speeches to the ire of feminists by saying, I'm here because my husband let me be here tonight, which made a lot of people very angry. But she was very, very successful in a rather paradoxical way because here she was this woman on the world stage she was very very successful at mobilizing conservative women to step up and to get political often around exactly the issues that I'm talking about around education What's, what's her legacy then? Because in, in, you're right, that is a paradox because she was actually an empowered woman I, speaking. I mean, I think her legacy in some ways is are all of these conservative women who are, you know, political heavy hitters. Megyn Kelly. Yeah, Ke yeah Megyn Kelly actually bracket her for one second, but Sarah Palin, mm -hmm. Ann Coulter, all of these women who are big heavy hitters out there but are ironically preaching this kind of family values which you would think would circumscribe their own position that they're taking. Megyn Kelly, I think, is interesting because she is one of these conservatives, too, like you point out, these conservative women. But then we saw when Donald Trump was really throwing all kinds of misogynistic comments at her, that strange positionality that she had, where some people were kind of holding her up as feminist victim of this horrible misogynist. And then other people said, well, yeah, but wait a minute. Look at the kind of morality that she's mm. preaching. And Schlafly, you can see some of the same things going on with. Schlafly, early in her career, before Stop ERA, her whole thing was about foreign policy. She was really anti-interventionist, and she had all of these ideas about immigration. And she's a very well-educated woman, went to Washington University. And remember, this is in the 1940s. I mean, she was born in the 19, 1924, I believe. So, But Phyllis Schlafly never got a seat at the table until she made her activism around a woman's or a family issue of Stop ERA. So she, in some ways, was a victim of the same kind of misogynistic stuff that feminists were victimized from. I think that's an interesting dynamic which continues today in terms of her legacy and I think Megyn Kelly is a good example of that. Speaking of legacies then, yeah. what's been, what were the results of these two respective but related debates about classrooms, you know, and how have how have American classrooms and American education changed because of them? One point which I think is very interesting about family values is that as I, me I mentioned, parents got more and more power to determine what was going on in the classroom. But what I saw happening in this period is this idea of family values, which sounds rather neutral, it was so racialized. Who were the parents that school administrators were kind of, you know, bowing to? Totally white parents, right? So when white parents, who are most of the interlocutors around sex ed, would say, no, 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 we don't want sex education in the classroom, for the most part, they got what they wanted. And school administrators would say, oh, we can't intrude upon parental values. 
when parents of Latino kids said we want Spanish taught in the classroom mm -hmm. because that reflects our background and our values, the answer they more usually got was no, 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 the school is a neutral space, we're experts, step off. And I think that that really shows how racialized family values is. So one legacy I think is just the way that those dynamics continue today. But another one I think, I mentioned that I came into this conversation when I began graduate school, the rise of the right literature was everything, that this notion that the new right and its rise has been the dominant thrust of American politics um, in the late 20th century. I still think there's merit to that, but what I actually saw is that for all of the conservative activism that I charted and that has real impact in today's political scene, on the whole, schools evidence a whole lot of persistent progressivism out of this period. In my book, one of the things that I saw was that both bilingual education and sex ed were avenues for a kind of institutionalized pluralism or multiculturalism that did not exist before. Like by the 1990s, and I believe I mentioned this in the epilogue, by the 1990s, in San Francisco, you had white middle class and upper class parents lining up to get their kids in bilingual education programs. To learn Spanish was to be not just PC, but it was a real global skill. That kind of thing was almost non-existent in most of the period that I charted. So I think that, and then with, sex, with sexuality, as I alluded to before, conservatives basically gave up the notion that this stuff would not be talked about. And in some ways you could say, well, they won the conservatives because now abstinence only has become such a big deal and they dominate the conversation in those ways. But I don't know, they still have to talk about sex more openly. Homosexuality was declassified as an illness in the 1970s. The Briggs Initiative, which was an initiative in California to fire gay teachers, failed. I mean, there have been a lot of inroads, I think, that speak to a persistent progressivism that came out of this era as much as a conservative, a series of conservative victories. And I and that's important to remember. Well, that's interesting because what you've been referencing are effects that have debates weren't just on classrooms, but were on the political landscape Absolutely. generally. Yeah. Okay, so could you talk about that a bit more? So, like, how, I mean, I guess, how have these debates not just affected, but also just reflected and helped drive a lot of the politics that we're seeing today? In many ways, you could see the kind of Trumpian rage about immigration as coming out of a sense that this stuff has all gone too far, right? And that t this taco trucks on every corner dystopia, which actually sounds kind of delicious to great. me. Yeah. I know, right? <laughs> like, what's wrong with that? That comes straight out of this era, right? The idea that our social and political institutions have not done their job to beat back this tide of Latinization. And, and I think that you see a lot of Trump's support coming from that very legacy. I mean, I am not naive, and as an educator, we like to think our schools have enormous impact on our society. I'm not naive in thinking that they have maybe as much as I would like to think, but I think that the institutionalization of this kind of multicultural ethos has been part of that. But it's caused backlash as well, but maybe that speaks to its power in some ways. And then in terms of sexuality, I mean, come on. If any, if there have been any signal victories, a victorious civil rights movement, I would say gay rights is probably it. With gay 
gay marriage, gay adoption becoming more mainstream. And I think that what goes on in schools really has something to do with that. Beyond just gay and lesbian issues, I mean, the whole transgenderism conversation, um, you can really credit a lot of educational institutions with moving the needle on people's perspectives on this. I mean, I think Caitlyn Jenner situation did a lot to kind of raise popular awareness of these questions. But come on, Caitlyn Jenner is one person and that coverage, and it did in some ways do this, but that coverage very easily could have been, this is a freak show, let's all watch with our jaws agape. And it actually, for the most part, didn't go that way. And I think that it didn't go that way in part of because of what our schools are doing. That said, that's a very, at least from my generally liberal perspective, that's a very optimistic assessment. I will say, you know, in the last chapter of my book concludes with the very depressing case of Proposition 13, which was a tax revolt in 1978, which essentially eviscerated public school funding in California. And one, the argument that I make is that this wasn't by accident, that schools were not casualty of this anti-government sentiment that nobody thought about, but that actually conservatives were getting very fed up with these kind of progressive reforms in schools. And that, that once you get to the 1980s, there is this kind of loss of faith in the common public school as a worthwhile endeavor. And I think, and this is something that we've talked about before, uh, but I think that that you really see in the charter school and the kind of various privatization movements that we have going on today, which are embraced by liberals. I mean, not really by the left, but who are very, very critical of charters and kind of market approaches to education. But if you think about some of the champions of many charter schools are people who consider themselves liberals and then they're backed by hedge funders. And I'm not casting aspersions on this group. I think lots of people are trying to do what they think is right to help children. But I do think it's it's a little bit depressing if once upon a time we all, and in the period I study my book, we all, and I mean hardcore John Birch type people, even thought that public schools were worth fighting for. So did the brown power, black power activists. They all thought the public schools were worth marching in the streets about and staying up all night writing newsletters about. By the 1980s and 90s, there's a real loss of faith in that regard. That's when you have the rise of homeschooling too. I mean, what better data point is do you have than that? So I think that it's, it's a mixed bag. Fortunately, when you study this stuff for a decade, there are no easy conclusions. You kind of see the strands knitting together in, in, in sometimes contradictory ways. So I'm really glad you bring that up because mm-hmm. there's a quotation from your book, page 202, for listeners if they're reading. You, you bring up interesting points of common ground, and here's one. You say the debates over education that you've been talking about gave rise to a capacious, patriotic morality among liberals and conservatives alike. What do you mean there? That came out, that phrase, patriotic morality, is something that I came up with, but that came out of reading thousands of pages of testimony from a committee that was formed in California called the Moral Guidelines Committee. And this came together in 1968. Ronald Reagan said, he looked around at the dramas happening around sex education, and he said, California is descending into moral crisis. We got to do something about it. We need to devise moral guidelines to pull California out of this moral, you know, downfall. And he was governor at the time. 
and he appointed Max Rafferty, who was the current conservative state superintendent of schools, and they essentially cherry-picked a very conservative committee to put together what they thought would be kind of rock-ribbed, anti-communist, anti-secular humanist guidelines that would root out sex ed, that would promote patriotism in the schools, and they thought that's what would go down. What ended up happening, and to simplify, is that there was basically a coup in the Moral Guidelines Committee. The liberal faction took over, some of whom had been conservatives. One of them had been Reagan's pastor, actually. And they said, look, basically, the 70s are a time for a new morality, and this thing is that you have come up with, which was an 80-page document, this is not going to fly. And so the board, the state school board, rejected the original document, reconvened the committee. The liberals were in power. They came up with another set of provisions, which essentially said, the way we teach morality in this age in which now due to the Supreme Court, we no longer can talk about God in schools, because there were a series of decisions in the 1960s. They came up with this notion that the way that we teach morality in schools, it's about nation, but very different. It's about love of nation, I should say, but very differently from their conservative committee members who had bought into the same idea. This is about patriotism. This is about nationhood. The liberals said this, the way we teach morality is about teaching kids to realize that America stands for something great, but it's an unfulfilled ideal. And so this idea of a patriotic morality, which I've now sort of circularly described, I promised listeners in the book, it's far more linear and eloquent. But um, the way, what ended up happening that I noticed is that both hardcore conservatives and progressives believed love of nation was the way to cultivate morality in this changing, churning society in which you couldn't talk about God or pray in schools anymore. But they had very different ideas about what that love of nation meant. The conservatives wanted it to be about anti-communist kind of jingoism, and the liberals were about celebrating America's promise, a kind of celebrating America's promise as a more equal nation, but something that very explicitly had not yet been fulfilled. So are these debates, would you, would you describe these debates as being through? Have we moved on to new topics or are we still battling over the same issues? Well, I think we've moved on to new topics if you just think about what people fight about in schools, right? So there's this charter school issue, which I've talked about, and the general kind of corporatization of schools. We fight more about testing. We fight about guns and violence. But I do think that at core, these same issues of what kind of citizens are we creating is the basis of all of these debates over education and is also the reason that they become so heated. I mean, at the end of the day, your kids are spending several hours a semester probably doing sex education. Maybe bilingual education doesn't even touch your community. But people get exercised about this stuff. And I think it's because those same fundamental questions drive the people who fight about these things, which are what kind of citizens are we making? And why should I be paying for a kind of citizenship training that I am not on board with? And so I think that if you think of those two kind of broad issues, then it, it, it starts to shed light on a lot of contemporary questions as well. It seems like some journalists and even some historians take the position or have taken the position, perhaps before the rise of Trump, that the culture wars are essentially over and much of the movements and ideas 
advanced by the left have sort of won in the general cultural sphere. Do you think, given some of the debates we're seeing right now, not just about education, but more generally in culture, do you think that's the case? I know. I mean, that's Andrew Hartman's thesis, and it's a great book, and he's a brilliant historian. But I don't agree with the conclusion necessarily. I don't think that the culture wars are over. I think you can point to incredible progressive gains, but I think that the Trump phenomenon, and I hate to play the Trump card, but it, hey, that's the elephant in the room. I think we're room. 30 minutes in this first time. Yeah, said, exactly. Yeah, that's yeah, good. That's, that's pretty good. good. We've made it pretty far. Um, but I yeah. just, I think that Trump's incredible popularity really speaks to the persistence of some of these just fundamentally opposed worldview questions, which to me, that's what the culture wars are made of, right? This notion of fundamentally opposed worldviews. And I don't, I still see that very much happening. When I listen to Trump supporters speak, Democrats speak, whether they were Bernie supporters or Hillary supporters, it's like people talking completely past each other. And I think that's, that's kind of the litmus test for is this a culture wars issue or not is, you know, are these people on the same page? They share the same worldview. And I don't really think they do. So can I ask you a bit about yourself? Sure, please. So where did you uh, grow up? I grew up in Newton, Massachusetts, which is a suburb west of Boston, uh, a very progressive place, very, I mean, a very liberal place, I should say. Yeah, that's where I'm from. And so where did you go to college? I went to Columbia. So I, this is my 20th year in New York City right now, although I left for a few years for graduate school. So you reference in your acknowledgments the dizzying year you spent teaching Spanish at a public school populated by English language learners Mm -hmm. when you were 22. Why was that year dizzying? Wow. Well, I think when you're 22, everything is sort of dizzying. But basically, it was just an incredible education for me, having grown up in these relatively privileged circles and totally having drunk the Kool-Aid that I, as this kind of smart Ivy League, smart idealistic Ivy League grad, could change the world by the force of my goodwill and, you know, the same kind of hard work that I'd put in studying for the SATs. So what ended up happening that year? Well, it was Disney for a few reasons. So I had actually, when I graduated from college, I had worked on Wall Street for a year and was, that was another kind of dizzying, but was so kind of revolted <laughs> by that whole scene that I ran. Yeah, a significant shift between Wall Street and what you're yeah, you know, so, I mean, professor that, of history. It, Yeah, definitely. So I kind of ran screaming from Wall Street wanting to do a much more, do so. I realized I cared about social justice basically, right? So then I um, I was too late to apply for any of those fellowship programs, you know, Teach for America or Teaching Fellows or anything like that. So I literally got in line at the Board of Education and gave them a a resume, which was a very short resume. And the first thing that was dizzying was I learned how privilege operates. So I was in line with uh, a couple of people who were also applying for teaching jobs were pretty down and out. Like one guy had gotten fired as a store clerk for shoplifting and now he wanted to be a teacher. And and I got up to the counter and just sort of started explaining to myself and literally, not figuratively, a door opens, some administrator sticks his head out and is like, you went to Columbia, come in here. And so I went in there and he's like, oh, these are the openings we have. Oh, you don't have the, I had to have some credential to teach history, but he said, but you know, oh, you took enough Spanish courses. Spanish is a high need area. Let me put you in touch with all these different schools. So then I interviewed at a bunch of different schools and you know, it's interesting, very different from when I was applying as a student to attend schools where I always wanted to go to the most prestigious place. I actually got teaching offers at very 
decent public schools in New York City, but I was like, I want to go to the hardest place. I want to go to the most down and out place. And I went to the school, PSIS 111, that was led by a principal who I thought was doing going to do great work. She she had gone to Harvard Graduate School of Education. She had these all these great ideas about progressive ed. They hired me as the middle school Spanish teacher. I, I was teaching there without a classroom. I had a cart that I would wheel around the hallway. You can by the way, cut like plenty of this. No, this is all good stuff. This is like Michelle Pfeiffer, Dangerous Mind. Yes, exactly. So I had a cart that I would wheel around the hallway from classroom to classroom, and there was no passing time built in the day. So already I was always going to be five minutes late. So that is a really bad way to establish any kind of authority, right? (laughs) So that was one thing that happened. The other thing that happened was I realized very early that with the exception of maybe three or four people, there were no veteran teachers there. There were people like me two or three years down the line. I also realized, this was kind of the first kind of crack in the foundation, in the assumption that I had had that, you know, going to a great school means you're smart and you deserve and everyone's going to respect you. The best teachers there who got the most respect were all people from the neighborhood, Mm -hmm. right? They were people who didn't necessarily go to fancy schools, but who had education degrees, not disciplinary degrees. And that was really uh, a kind of, that was very educational for me. Then 9-11 happened, the third day of school, actually. So that was very complicated, too, because we had actually a bunch of Middle Eastern kids in the school who literally there was a boy named Osama. His dad showed up the next day and said, call him Sam from now on. This boy got beat up almost every day. I mean, it was really a terrible, terrible um time period in New York and and there. But one of the other reasons it was dizzying was in order to make money at night, I was doing private tutoring for kind of the very well-heeled private school set, but working with these kids during the day. I saw the disparity in educational resources. So, I mean, literally, I would go from one hour, I'd finish at three, by five, I'd be teaching these rich kids. These two groups of children would never, they lived maybe 10 minutes apart from each other, 20 minutes apart, they'd never cross paths. And then one of the things that got, so that got me interested in kind of inequality in education. But then um, because I was teaching Spanish, I started realizing how underexplored and under theorized, for lack of a better word, the whole notion of Hispanic or foreign language or any of these categories that were shaping my everyday experience actually were. So I was teaching Spanish in a school that was had a very high percentage of Latino students. They would, for some reason, put a lot of the Latino students in school, in my class, some kids who were real English language learners who should have been in an English language learning situation, right? And then, and then in some ways that made no sense because why should they be learning Spanish from me? That's the language that their parents teach, that their parents speak. On the other hand, it actually did make sense because many of them didn't know how to spell hola in Spanish, right? But then here I am, right? So I grew up speaking Argentine Spanish. I was schooled in Castilian Spanish and studied in Spain. And there I am at the front of the room. Then I have this group of kids in the room who are all grouped under the same category of Hispanic or Latino who have nothing to do with one another. You have Mexican kids who have major citizenship challenges going on. You have Puerto Rican and Dominican kids who are missing huge chunks of school because they're flying back and forth with their parents and who also have never learned English or Spanish. You have these Chilean kids who come from Catholic schools and are like the most diligent kids doing like 
ready for rote memorization and all of these things, speak perfect Spanish, but no English. And so, long story, not so short, one of the things that was dizzying for me and which really introduced me to want to study bilingual education and study this whole, what I could not define at that point as anything more precise than this mess that was Latino identity and language in, in the United States, was seeing on the ground what a total mess it was and how no one had any language to disaggregate this very complicated and unproductive thing that I was in and that I was a part of the problem of. So yeah, that was one of the dizzying things. This is, an, I think, a question with an obvious answer, but yeah. did your insights into how, indeed, how messy it was sort of on the ground, did that affect your approach to studying the politics and the policy around this? And how did the debate reflect the insights you're talking about, which is that actually this Hispanic yeah. education is actually much more complicated than... So the, um, the dynamics I saw in 2001 in New York City absolutely played out in different ways in the 60s and 70s in, in, and 80s in California and probably still do, some in very concrete ways. So you had, I remember in one example in the book that I talk about, I believe it was in Santa Barbara, you had supposedly what was considered to be a big concession for the Latino kind of pro-bilingual education activists, which was, we're going to translate these IQ tests into Spanish and give them to the kids who arrive in Spanish. And then you have the, the leader of this pro-bilingual ed group um, saying, well, thank you, but you look at the Spanish that's being used on these tests. It's like, it was it was uh, Castilian Spanish from Spain for children from rural Mexico. They said this would be like testing an American child and saying label the parts of this lorry, that's the bonnet, you know, for the <laughs> trunk, and using British English and then saying you're stupid because you can't figure it out. So that, you know, that, that happened there. The other thing, which um, that's just one small example, but I think thematically, which is a major part of my book, is disaggregating this idea or, you know, deconstructing this idea that the Latino bloc acted in one particular right. way. Okay. And so one of the things which I would like to think is a pretty significant contribution is actually showing that lots of Latinos were not marching in the streets with the brown berets demanding bilingual education. You had all kinds of moderate and conservative Latinos, some of whom did mm. totally buy into this older assimilationist model. Some of the some people who bought into that assimilationist model because they thought the alternative, which was supposed to be so radical and new, was actually racist. So what am I talking about? So there's one particular letter that I'm thinking of, of a woman who had already been there for a generation, who wrote to the LA Times, and she said, and she was Latina, Mexican-American herself, she says, I don't know what all the fuss is about. This notion that my, our children can't learn if their teacher has blonde hair and blue eyes, that's racist. Right. My kids went to public school and learned English and they are mentally capable of doing that and they're doing just fine now. So the idea that we need to be spoon, I'm paraphrasing, but that we need to be spoon fed in Spanish and that we need to be greeted with, you know, kind of tacos in the cafeteria, that's racist, as opposed, which is a very different notion of a kind of progressive inclusive approach mm -hmm. that says, actually, yes, we do need cultural recognition, not because those kids are so much lesser that we need to 
you know, meet them where they are, but because that's the humane thing to do for anyone. And that, you know, what kids that are part of the dominant culture automatically get met with familiar cultural symbols at school. And we have a responsibility to disrupt that. So that kind of thing was super interesting to me. One of the characters in the book who, I, you know, he's really a mystery for all my digging. I could only get to him through kind of secondary mentions and collections and things is this guy, Eugene Gonzalez, who was Max Rafferty's um, appointee, a deputy superintendent. So Rafferty, as I mentioned, is this very vociferous conservative, but um, early in his career, he was much more centrist before the 60s kind of polarized. And one of the things that he did was he appointed the person at the time, Eugene Gonzalez, who was the highest ranking Latino appointee in the state of California. Gonzalez's grappling with his own identity as a Mexican-American, but who is part of a conservative administration, is fascinating. Watching him show up and, and talk to student groups, radical student groups, and both tell them things like, we no longer need to hit the administration with two by fours, you know, they'll listen, like marching in the streets is not the way to do things, kind of tempering that, which you could say, oh, he's some sort of, you know, just mouthpiece with brown skin. But at the same time, you also see him really standing up to these very, these like harsh conservatives who are essentially unreconstructed racists, saying that he says things like the sleeping giant of the Mexican-American is sleeping no more. We are awake and mm -hmm. we are ready to claim our place in schools. And you can see he is really conflicted. And when he when he is corresponding by letters with uh, some of the more uh, radical activists, there's a very interesting exchange where they keep referring to him to him as Eugenio by his Spanish name. And he keeps responding responding like sincerely Eugene Gonzalez and so you see like even on the level of naming and language and that kind of stuff happens throughout like I I look at one group of very conservative Mexican-Americans who call themselves Americans of Mexican descent. And those people, and I'll, I'll conclude on your very good question with this point, but I think that historiographically, Latino history has not included a lot of those voices that are more conservative and critiquing kind of radical activists because it's not such a pretty story to tell when some of the history, and I think it's very good history, but some of the purpose of the history, like that of any marginalized group, has been about uncovering or reclaiming a kind of narrative of ethnic affirmation. So it's like, it's not that great to remember all those people who were actually questioning that kind of activism. I, I just, I want our listeners to get a, a better sense of, of, of who you are too. Yeah. Uh, so you recently wrote an article called When Wellness is a Dirty Word that made some waves at the Chronicle of Higher Ed. Can you tell us about that article and your work on wellness? Yeah, so switching gears very much to <laughs> yes. um, my net, my current project that I'm working on. Not so dirty secret about me. Um, part of what allowed me to write that first book was actually my kind of, at the time, clandestine life as a real wellness fanatic. I was living in California in grad school, running races, and then I got really into teaching this mind-body class. And for a long time, that was very, these were distinct parts of my personality by my own design. You know, there was the serious academic and then this sort of wellness uh, enthusiast. The piece in the Chronicle that I wrote essentially, and, and, and I should say, but 
the research that I'm working on right now is about looking at the history of really post-war fitness culture in the United States and essentially how what I call body projects, if you can imagine Muscle Beach and in Venice, California in the 1950s, how this kind of sub, very male subculture has evolved into a, into a kind of very broad mainstream culture of which women have been some of the main kind of champions and that these body projects have evolved into much a much broader project which has both become more inclusive and about kind of mental well-being and and has become more inclusive for many groups like women and like minorities but has also become inescapable right that you kind of can't escape wellness it's sort of everywhere right now so that's the general theme of the bigger project but in the in the Chronicle, I, what I did is I really took issue with three new works about wellness, which are all kind of critiques of this mainstreaming of wellness culture as a kind of narcissistic neoliberalization of American, or of really of American and British life. And these authors, and there are four of them, because one of the books is co-authored, all kind of look at everything from Fitbits to life coaching to spin classes as kind of obvious, obvious evidence that the world is going down the drain and we're expected to kind of be declaring these affirmations of like, I am happy, I am happy as that happens, which turns us away from serious political engagement. And, you know, Christopher Lash made that argument in the 1970s and it's an argument with merit and I honestly think that some people in the wellness industry really need to hear that because they're not kind of thinking in those in those political or kind of like grander social terms but by contrast, I think that in itself is such a snobby argument and it totally overlooks the fact that this focus on kind of self-care and well-being has real roots in the efforts of marginalized communities to survive in this world. And I think that we should not we should not lose sight of that. And I say that in and, and one of the ways that I look at that is in terms of let's say feminist wellness clinics in the nineteen seventies, African American nutrition programs in the same era. It's very easy to look around today, especially in a neighborhood like the one you and I live in right now, and see twelve dollar green juices and hundred dollar yoga leggings and turn up your nose and think all of this body stuff is just stupid. But I think that to me there's a deep snobbery in that kind of approach and one that overlooks the labors which are not just about getting flat abs. You know, Not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, just about getting flat abs but have actually been um, important strategies um, for uh, marginalized people for a long time. So you also are co-host of a of a great podcast called Past Present, uh, yeah. which I listen to. Um, Thank you. Yes, you talk. So you talk in the podcast. You talk about the historical significance of almost everything in pop culture. You talk about politics, television, and all else. I really loved your uh, your episode on um, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Oh, uh, thanks. So, yes. So how did you start with that? So um, I was actually invited onto that by my two co-hosts, Nicole Hammer and Neil Young. And, uh, you know, the long short story is that Nikki was moving out of teaching into a research position. She's a research um, professor at the Miller Center at UVA. And Neil was moving out of teaching into do, doing more writing and independent scholarship and so they had been thinking what's a way to keep that amazing feeling of teaching alive of researching something new of interacting
interacting really with the public, of, of teaching something, of constantly engaging with new topics and with new literature. And at that point, I mean, I'm not moving away from teaching anytime soon, then nor now, but I had already been doing a lot of kind of writing for the public sphere, like in, not in the Chronicle yet, but public books and, and um, the Huffington Post and lots of other places, Slate. So I knew them kind of a little bit. I, I knew Neil especially. We all have this love of bringing historical thinking into contemporary conversations. And I think any historian feels that there's not enough history in our 24-hour news cycle, mm -hmm. that so much of the commentary that goes on is just kind of hot takes and doesn't take account into account historical context. Now, this is something historians love to grouse about, and I've been that grouser too, but we decided to actually do something about it, right? And so I'm glad that, you know, it, we're so lucky and fortunate and we must be doing something right that we have listeners like you who are in the scholarly world but still feel like this brings something new to them each week. But then we also have all of these people who say things like, I hated history, but I listened to you and it's like, I really understand mm -hmm. the world we live in better or the more superficial but still very satisfying. I love it because it makes me the smartest one at the dinner party. I always have something <laughs> to say. And so that was really the kind of the way it came together. And then I think, you know, all three of us have always been kind of experimenting with social media and historical thinking and the way that the digital world can support us um, or can support the work that we do. And this has really be become one of, I think, the, the most effective way of getting out there, as they say. I mean, when I think of how many thousands of people listen to us at this point on a weekly basis, it's not the same as teaching students in the classroom. I don't think this will ever replace that. I'm not some kind of like lover of MOOCs, you know. But I, it, it's something, right? I think it's really amazing that in a week I interact with more people than I have in my whole career so far as a as a professor and so I'm excited to have this platform and I realize actually how valuable it is when I go and do some kind of like truly mainstream TV thing or radio thing and they're like all right we have six minutes to talk about immigration you know six minutes for the whole thing and they ask me like two minutes of questions and then it gets cut down to 45 seconds and I'm like oh yeah this is the way most of the world consumes news so I mean I hope one day you know we're like broadcast on MSNBC or some like very mainstream place but for now I feel like we're doing I, I know we are doing our best to kind of stake our flag in the ground for deep his, relatively deep historical thinking about contemporary topics if people want to subscribe, where should they go? They should go to um, iTunes or Google Play and just look up Past Present. You can also go to pastpresentpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Past Present Pod. Find us on Facebook at Past Present. There is no shortage of ways to find us. Natalia, thanks very much for talking Thank with me. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. That was Natalia Melman Petrozella talking about her book, Classroom Wars, which can be purchased at bookstores across the nation and indeed online. You should also check out her podcast, Past Present, online. I'm a big fan of that podcast. Natalia and her co-hosts offer really valuable and engaging historical analyses of current events. Subscribe to it. Review it. It's a great show. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Travis Wheeler edits the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. For more information about Ralph and our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. 
I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.